at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a pleasure to have a conversation with Professor Jennifer Cleland. Uh, Jennifer is the Vice Dean Education and Director of the Medical Education Research and Scholarship Unit at the Lee Kong Shan School of Medicine at Nanyang Te Technological University in Singapore. I hope I pronounced everything right. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for inviting me, Saida. Perfect. So uh, just a little bit of background for our listeners. You and I met about, I think, five years ago at, at an AMI conference, which is the Association for Medical Education in Europe conference. I think we shared a, a workshop together at a table with another colleague, and then we ended up shopping together and having coffee. <laughs> in downtown right. i remember where it was milan i remember it was yeah, milan i was wondering yeah i think it was milan because i remember the big um, buildings and that was very enjoyable and one of the things that really struck me that day is just it, even though you have been a, a big figure in medical education community and have leadership roles and you are still willing to engage with everybody And at the time I was just beginning my, my career, my colleague was also doing her PhD. And after that, we ended up talking, that is so cool that people <laughs> like Jane can actually come out with us and chop. That was a very cool experience. So I know a little bit about uh, your story and I wanna start there, but before we get into the details, I was curious to know what brought you into research in general? Like what was the trigger for you to become a researcher? Oh, oh, no. I mean, well, that goes way back. Um, when I did my undergraduate degree, my undergraduate degree was psychology. And I mean, psychology is a very diverse degree. There were um, semesters on social psychology, on statistics. So I had lots of statistics, which has probably um, done, you know, served me well in the longer term. But um, we also had sessions on animal behavior, sociobiology. We had at the university we had one of the only behavioral primatology units in Europe at the time um monkeys I mean monkeys are just exotic and exciting and we also had two very good lecturers so everybody who did this semester wanted to do animal behavior um it's just you know it was just fun but I was lucky enough to get one of the lecturers as my dissertation supervisor And through that, he offered me a, a summer job doing a study in the primate unit. I, I mean, the, the pay was terrible, but that's not the point. It was exciting and it was interesting. So I spent a summer sitting in a sitting in a big, big kind of room that was made out to be a jungle with all these monkeys floating around above me, um, tamarind, South American monkeys, yeah, and got and got my first paper out of it. And <laughs> I guess like most research, there was lots of tedium. I mean, there's stuff we do that you just have to do it. Um, but overall, I enjoyed the experience. And then um, during my final year when I was doing my dissertation, I thought I want to do a PhD. And I wanted to do a PhD in animal behavior. But a lot of people go and watch monkeys 
in jung real jungles, not just simulated jungles, real jungles for three or four years. And I think I knew myself well enough that that really wasn't for me. Uh, so I applied for a PhD working in a lab looking at rodent social behaviour. So my PhD, which nobody other than my parents have read, I suspect, <laughs> is in <laughs> gerbil social behaviour. So small furry rodents. And I loved it. It was great fun. Uh, absolutely brilliant. But I think I've always been very pragmatic. And a PhD is, it's a, it's a rite of passage. You need to do a PhD. It's project management. It's self-motivation. It's Oh, it's like the ultimate self-directed learning. So I always knew that there was lots of generic skills through doing this. And the topic itself, while fascinating to me, didn't matter so much for the going ahead. It was all the generic things that I learned that were useful. Um, although I still have a fondness for um, small South American monkeys. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. That's the part of the story that I was like... What did you do a PhD in what? <laughs> in, in, in gerbil social behavior? Yes, how did that help her career in, in medical education? Hmm. Well, now we want to tie it back to medical education because after that, you said you told me that first of all, you went to Northern Ireland, and at the yeah. time that it was in, in the big troubles, and then you were telling me about this story of living with other people and bombing around, and then you did a master's in occupational psychology, and then medical education research like what's the connection there okay oh, it's pretty tenuous um so yeah when I finished my P I went to Belfast to do my PhD because that's where the PhD was where the supervisor that I wanted to work with was um didn't yeah had no connections with Northern Ireland uh, and it was the tail end well not the tail end of the troubles I mean the troubles rumble on but it was um, 1989-1990 but it's, Belfast is quite a small city. Queen's is a very established university. There was lots of PhD students. It was actually very sociable and jolly. Um, and you very you very quickly adjust to where you live, I believe. And Northern Ireland just happened to be lots of armed vehicles and armed people and bomb alerts. And that was kind of just normal. And I do remember having coffee one morning and we, we tried to have department coffee once a week everybody was encouraged to go and we had to um, evacuate the building because there was a bomb alert. And we were so used to these things. Everybody just kind of moaned about the fact their coffee would get cold. Nobody was scared. They were just like, oh, this is a hassle, isn't it? Oh, I'll be late for whatever and my coffee's chilling and oh, great, you managed to remember the biscuits. That's fine. Um, that was just life, but it was good. Um, so when it finished though, although I said earlier, you know, it doesn't really matter what the topic of the PhD is. One of the things I'd done to earn money when I was a PhD student um, was teach a lot of management courses and kind of occupational psychology. I don't really know how I managed to do that because I didn't really know what I was doing. But anyway, and so I decided to formalise that and do the master's. So I had my PhD viva in the morning and I started the master's in the afternoon. And of course, I knew the, the course director and he, he said, on pain of death, Jen, you have to get through with minimum changes because I'm taking a risk here, given the timing of your viva. And I was like, it'll be fine, Adrian, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And, and luckily it was. But the, the doing the masters was great fun. It was all teamwork and group projects, really sociable. And while the PhD had been sociable, 
you know, you as a PhD student, you work on something by yourself. You don't work with others. That's the nature of the beast. So to have to do all this team working was it was really good for me. It was it just kind of socialized me into back into that side of things. And mm-hmm. um, so did that for a year and then worked as an occupational psychologist. Oh, yes. And you wanted to know how I got into medical education. Well, then I worked as an occupational psychologist. And the bit I liked was the more clinical side. So I then retrained and did a doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Edinburgh. And that's a bit like medical training in the UK. You do rotations through the specialties and you have coursework to do and workplace based assessments. Finished that. Sorry, that's just skipping over about six years in a couple of sentences. Uh, Finished that and there was one job advertised in our appointments memorandum. You know, nothing was online in those days. And a friend was around and she said, oh, did you see that job? It was written for you. And I was like, what job? And she went, oh, you know, in the memorandum. And unfortunately, the memorandum was by that point in my recycling bin. So I remember us going to the kitchen and pulling out all this recycling and go finding the memorandum, which was a bit kind of damp by this point, and finding the job ad. And it was for a job that was a half, 50% clinical psychology and 50% working in the medical school, um, being the deputy lead of the clinical communication vertical strand. And I was like, to, um, to Maria, my friend, I don't know anything about medicine. And she went, okay, but you'll, you can make it up as you go along. Um, so I made the informal inquiries, did some visits and, and was offered the job. And that was where it started. That was in 2000. Okay. So I, I hear a pattern in your story about having fun as you go through those moments in your life that for other people are quite stressful going to a PhD and a master's. What is it in your upbringing that makes you take things that way? It feels to me that it's kind of your mindset as you go into like, this is fun, let's do that. Is there (laughs) something there that brings out that of you? Um, That's an interesting point. I think I'm quite resilient. I think one has to be to be an academic, to be honest. Um, I tend to, if you know, if, if there's a setback, I may, I may, you know, have a little weep or get a bit grumpy or drink a large glass of wine very quickly. But then once, once I've kind of got past that, I get past that side quite quickly and then think, okay, how do we address this? How do we sort this? How do we get the, the best out of this situation? Um, which is, <laughs> it's a useful strategy given rejections from journals and things like that. You have to be focused on the next step. Um, and a little bit of risk-taking. I, I don't think I'm a particularly um, big risk-taker but I know others think I am. So I guess it's your stance and things. So going into going for a job in medicine where I really, really didn't know anything about it. I, you know, I had some informal meetings with people. I got hints. I read up on it. I prepared. And it, it's so it's not just about jumping into things without thinking. It's doing preparation as well. Yeah, that's a form of risk-taking for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned something about um, what the PhD was about for you and the master's and the difference between those two. And I had the benefit of learning part of that halfway of my, my PhD. My supervisor told me, 
A PhD is not about knowing a lot about your topic because now you can find that in the internet. A PhD teaches you a methodology and a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, what else did you took out of that experience of going through diverse PhDs and masters and bring it into your work in medical education research? Well, I think there's several things. There's the genetic, there's the time management, the task management, the what do we have to do, who do we need or who do I need to be in contact with to help me achieve this. Um, So kind of planning what needs to be done. But then the more intellectual side of learning particular strategies, particular methodologies, but also being open. Um, I mean, I knew... I only had undergraduate learning in qualitative research until it came to my second doctorate. So my the gerbil doctorate, the PhD, was very um, quantitative, statistical. I can't actually remember what I did for my master's dissertation. Anyway, I can't remember. But then when I did my clinical psychology doctorate dissertation, it, I was looking at stress in caregivers. Um, a new drug was on the market for um, dementia, denepazil. And we wanted to see, our eye was interested to see if if relatives were, were put on denepazil, if it relieved any of the kind of the burden of stress on caregivers, which were usually their spouses, so another elderly person. And because the drug was just on the market, it was re- really difficult to get numbers for any sort of useful um, quantitative survey although we do, I didn't do the survey but it was small numbers so to supplement that my then supervisor said have you thought about doing some case studies of the families the people and I was like mm, what do you mean no statistics mm. um, and she was like yes go and read up on it and, and in the end that was probably more of my thesis than the, than the um, validated surveys and it was, it was learning that there was a completely other way of looking at things that had been kind of alien to me before, but was actually incredibly useful. And so it was then that I started working with both methodologies. I think that's one thing that's clear from all my, my work, my published work, that I am quite happy with quant or qual. It is, I, I am the ultimate pragmatist. It's about the research question. Okay. And in, in that line of the research, how would you de- uh, describe in your own words, uh, the research interests you have and the things you work on? Hmm. Okay, well, everything's interesting. That's probably the problem. Um, everything we do, everything, I see research questions in everything that, is ha- that happens. And one research question always leads to another 10 research questions. Um, I think when, you know, I was at Aberdeen for 20 years, And my job switched, you know, I was saying earlier, it was half-time clinical, half-time teaching initially. Within a few years, that swapped around. So I was doing more research. And within, in 2011, I got an endowed chair. So 80% of my time was research. But I had lots of colleagues. And I worked a lot with clinical colleagues. And we would see these problems all the time in clinical training. So the, the questions kind of came out of what we were seeing. Um, I'd like, you know, they were really based in the issues that p- people were um, people were seeing on the ground, the, particularly things like workforce, stu- um, 
people taking time out of training, poor clinical learning environments, just every, everything was real. And, and be, But I had the contacts and the position to be able to get in and look at these problems that were of relevance beyond just researchers. They were of relevance to the policymakers and those um, running programmes, those funding programmes. And that was very helpful in terms of both social capital and hard cash. So really tried to do research that was useful as well as good quality research. Okay. And what is the link now that you are in Singapore? You moved from the UK to Singapore. Uh, how is it being? What triggered it first? Like, what's the driver? And then, what are you doing there? Okay. Um, oh, there was a number of drivers. Um, you know, I had, had been in the same place for 20 years. Um, lots and lots of things were just great about it. But I think I had a bit of a midlife crisis, perhaps. Um, I thought, well, you know, I could stay here for another 10, 15 years. And, you know, it would be comfortable and I would get plenty done. But, or we could do something different. Um, so, and there was also some family things in the background. We, uh, where we, we lived very near my husband's parents, and my, they were they were quite elderly, and we had agreed as a family that we wouldn't move while they were still alive because they were so, you know, they they got a great deal of joy out of my daughter, who's she's now ten. And then, as uh, you know. As per the natural way of things, they both they both died, and there came a point when we can I remember looking at each other, my husband and I, and thinking, "My goodness, we don't need to stay here anymore. We can do what we want," which was a bit frightening in a way. We were very comfortable. We had good jobs. We had a lovely house. We had lots of friends. But it was like, well, let's do something different. So he's an anaesthetist, an anesthesiologist, depending and where you're based. So we had to we decided we had to find a country where we could both work, and we so I applied for the jobs first and got got some got various job offers, and then we thought well if we're going to move let's let's really move let's <laughs> let's move country if we're going to pack up our belongings let's not just put them in a lorry to go to somewhere in England let's put them in a container and ship them across the world. Um, so we we ended up here just to, yeah to do something different to challenge ourselves. We're both in our early fifties, so why not? Uh -huh. And, and also, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to say for my daughter. I mean, both my husband and I w lived in the same house as we were growing up. Um, all our parents still lived in their house. My parents still live in the house they built. His parents lived in the house that he'd been brought up in. I just thought, well, actually, it might be quite fun for our daughter to have the experience of a completely different place to live and go to school for a few years. Wow. Just aside, now that you mentioned your daughter, how is she adjusting to the move? Mm. Well, we brought her over in advance and visited the school that we thought would suit her, which was possibly the best thing we ever did because she knew where she was going. Wow. Um, and, her, and she's really adjusted well. I mean, it was the first term was difficult. Um, she arrived in the middle of term. She arrived just after Christmas. Well, and that's challenging for any kid. But then, of course, COVID came and the, the, all the schools closed here much earlier than closed anywhere else in the world. So the poor thing, she and I were trapped in our house for 10 weeks, sharing oh. the study 
and that was hard for her but then then things got back to normal and everything she's adjusted very well she's enjoying herself oh that's good i'm glad um, i was wondering as you were telling the story of that big move i imagine there have been some challenges of course but what has been an unexpected but gratifying moment in that transition so far for you um well i didn't come here to do the vice dean of education role I, I came, yeah, I came here to do very much what I did in Aberdeen to to develop and lead an education and scholarship unit, which the, the in a different context. And although there was something nominally, it really, there was only kind of really one. Um, there's only one well-known person working in the unit, so it wasn't quite starting from scratch, but more or less. So. Um, And then within a couple of months of being here, the Vice Dean of Education announced that she was leaving. And I thought, hmm, interesting, okay. And I had been offered Vice Dean of Education roles in other places. So I knew, you know, I know I've got the skills, I know I've got the competencies. So I thought, well, oh, well may as well apply for it, take on a new challenge. And it was a child, it was it was a risk for Singapore. Singapore is a very conservative society, and I'm the first non-medical vice dean of education in a medical school here. Wow. So that was interesting. But so other people took a risk or have taken a risk by putting me in that position. Um and so that that's that's interesting and challenging, but I'm really glad I've done it because it puts me in the center of the action. And that's good for ultimately for the research connections as well. Mm -hmm. on, on the flip side, what is one decision that you made that didn't turn out the way you had planned? But in hindsight, it was a good decision to make. I want to flip the coin. Oh, yeah, that's a, that, no, that's a good question, actually. Um, I told you before that I, I did the, I was doing occupational psychology and then I decided to go and do the the um, doctorate in clinical psychology and one of the reasons was just to be blunt bloody mindedness it was the most competitive course in the UK to get onto at the time there was like 350 applications for 13 places so there's that kind of you know wanting to prove oneself And when I started the course, I think I learned, I realized relatively soon, I can't, I can't, couldn't put my figure, finger on the timing, but I realized that actually I wasn't cut out to be a clinical psychologist. I did not like the professional culture. I didn't like the ethos. Um, and I can't really put my finger on things, but it wasn't for me. So when that job was off, the, the job that was half and half, was perfect because I really don't think I would have been a particularly good full-time clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. Doing a bit of clinical psychology and I eventually ended up in hospital um, psychiatry, liaison psychiatry, that that suited me down to the ground. It was a small team, it was very specialist. Um, the, the people were nice and the, the problems were very medical. Mm -hmm. um, it actually it dovetailed beautifully with my university job. So perhaps doing the course wasn't the right thing, but it was the right thing because it was a springboard to other things. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing. 
I was wondering also about the value of mentors and advices. And as you have gone through so many transitions and paths, uh, do you have any advice that somebody has given you that has stayed with you all the way until now that you still remember? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure about advice per se. I am. I think it was more support. Okay. So I can't really. I I didn't have any mentors early on. Um, it was really when I got to Aberdeen. My then head of department, Lewis, he was very supportive of kind of people finding their own pathway. Okay. So I would I would see him, you know, maybe once every few months and, you know, to, for a catch up and tell him how things were going and tell him what I was interested in and what I wanted to do. And he would quietly maneuver things behind the scenes that allowed me to, I don't know, allowed me my head, allowed me to follow some of the ideas that I'd presented to him. He was a facilitator. I, I, I put people into two camps. There's facilitators and there's blockers. Ah. And he was a facilitator. And then similarly, um, the first the first um, undergraduate dean of medical education I worked with, John, he was very good at, at quietly supporting younger staff, newer staff, mm -hmm. um, to explore things, to, you know, again, not just saying this is what you've got to do, but letting people kind of explore their jobs and their roles and, extend things and and another chap called Hamish who took over after him so they were all very facilitative and mm -hmm. things happened because they saw what I was good at so um, and then changed my what we would have called in the UK helped me change my job plan accordingly which was how I managed to shift over to doing lots of research wow. I've never I've never had a female mentor oh interesting yeah mm. but that, that's a very lucky uh way of doing things like So having someone who allows you to figure out your own path um, for a person like you, I think is very liberating. And I, and I was wondering in that like kind of part of your journey, what have you learned about yourself as a person? <laughs> um, I hate being told I can't do something. <laughs> oh, that, that is the worst thing you can do to me. Then I turn into a kind of truculent teenager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah I I don't like being restrained or constrained maybe that's the, the better word um I like I like people I like working with people who have ideas and and where we can kind of go off in tangents and go go off go off plan to do something interesting so although there's kind of a core to what I do I core themes to what I do. I love to explore and try new methodologies and find new theories. And yeah, sometimes you go down rabbit holes, but what the hell, you know? <laughs> That's very good. And along those lines, um, what is on your plate now? And um, what are you looking to do? What's your next curiosity, if I may call it that way? <laughs> um, well, I've, I've come to an environment that's very um, focused on technology. Um, that there, there's a bit of an attitude here that if, it, if it's high tech, it's good. And let's replace the low tech with the high tech because it'll be better. And I'm, I'm much more cynical than that. So I, um, 
I, I want to look at much more of the kind of social materiality side of things. So we, we for example, we have these huge, big, high-tech learning studios for um, where the students are, 150 students are in small groups of six. There's big screens. The students are all in their groups of six, but they're all looking at their laptops and they're all looking at their phones and occasionally they might glance up at the big screen. And I'm thinking, what is actually going on here? And the, the part, you know, people say, oh, look how high tech it is. And I think, look at the fact nobody's interacting except with their computer. So all that, and there's a lot of kind of parallels to that in different places and in, in the medical degree and also other environments. So I, I, I'm just, I'm working with colleagues and trying to find out more and exploring the kind of more social material side of things and hopefully do some empirical work because I've noticed that in our literature there's quite a number now of papers on social materiality and how useful it might be in medical education but there is actually very few studies using yep. the theories studies with real data mm-hmm. so it st- strikes me that this is this is a good niche yeah um, yeah and the theories are the theories are intellectually taxing and I like that too oh wow we're very much looking forward to see where that takes you in the next little while I have a couple more questions before we close and and one is more about um I like getting at topics that people might not know about others which is what would be one thing that people who are around you might not know about you as a person that makes you the researcher you are now um, well, they probably don't know about the gerbil PhD, but I'm not sure that that's, that answers your that answers your question. Um, what do they not know about me? Yeah. Hmm. Things you like, things you're interested in, that is your personal thing, and <laughs> I think I'm actually I think I'm relatively transparent. Um, they probably don't know that actually I would be happiest cycling up a mountain and being a master of wine but that's for that's for retirement our our hobbies are wine and cycling and we 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 try to combine those two things as often as possible our poor daughter was towed towed around the wine regions of France when she was young and we had a chariot um and those were our holidays so we managed to combine the two very well and I challenged myself last year before we moved to Singapore. So sorry, not last year, 2019, by doing an, a, a wine qualification to try and bring me towards or one step nearer being a master of wine. Um, wow. I know my husband thought I was completely nuts because um, it was the, sort of the, the six months before we were moving to Singapore. So there was so much going on. It was high stress period. And I was like, right, I'm going to do wine and spirits education level um, assessment three and he was like what are you doing you've got no time but it was actually a good distraction mm-hmm. and it was also a nice challenge because it was a formal exam with short answer questions and multiple choice questions and I thought my god I haven't done one of these for about 40 years um, um, and I thought good I have more empathy with the students now I've actually had to revise and study and do practice questions um, and it was actually it was it was good for me to remind me what it's like to study. Oh, wow. Fascinating. I, if I may ask, actually, it sounds like you and your husband get along well together despite all the different turns around. Uh, what makes it work for you two? I think he's very tolerant of me. 
Um, he is he is very he's he's quite calm. I think he, he has to be because of his specialty. Um, he he I'll I'll be kind of like running around with my hands in the air and going, oh my god, it's a disaster. Um, and he'll be going, oh, well, let's just kind of let's just stop and think for a minute, which occasionally does make me want to punch him. But as a as a yeah exactly, but as a pairing, it works quite well. And I think also we have we we do have quite similar backgrounds. It's dreadful. Three of our four parents were teachers, which you know is enough to scar anybody for life. Um, <laughs> so we we have we have we have a sort of similar upbringing, and we have we think similarly about the big things. Oh yeah, that that's a big deal for sure. The value part. Just to end this conversation, I was wondering because you have such an eclectic journey in your career. If you wouldn't be here doing medical education, research and leadership, where do you think you will be if you had the, the chance to choose whatever? Gosh, I'm not, I really don't know. Um, I mean, I have romantic idea, ideals, like maybe running, everybody will laugh at this, running a campsite in the south of France sounds heavenly. Wow. But... Um, I'm sure that it has its own challenges. It would be something completely different. It would be something completely different. Oh, I can see that. I'll be in your camp for sure. Thank you. <laughs> It'll be very well organized, Saira. You know? I totally agree. That's why I would <laughs> sign me up. It's been really, really enjoyable having a conversation with you, Jen. Appreciate the time you're making, the time difference as well. Thank you so much for being here. Not at all. Thanks very much for asking me. I've enjoyed it. And thank you so much to our listeners. Uh, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, everyone. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.